For the last 22 years, I've been rocking stages, playing in clubs, and having a lot of fun as a DJ and turntablist, and I've seen and learned a lot. Now it's time for me to share that knowledge by answering the questions that can help you become a better DJ. I'm DJ TLM, and this is Share the Knowledge. Today's podcast is brought to you by Banzoogle. One, two, one, two, what's going on? It's your boy, DJ TLM, and you're tuned in to the Share the Knowledge podcast. This is my Q&A show for DJs. If you're tuning in on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Anchor, SoundCloud, or any of the other podcast platforms, I welcome you. I drop a new episode every Monday, and I get questions from everywhere. Today's episode is going to be an IG episode, so episode 55 is an Instagram episode. I posted a post a couple hours ago a video where I asked you guys to send me DJ related questions and I've already seen there's like over 20 questions in there so we got plenty for this episode uh, now I will also post a couple of clips from every episode to my YouTube channel DJ TLM TV now if you're listening to the podcast you don't need to check out the video clips but I do offer a lot of other DJ related video material on that channel so if you're not familiar with my youtube channel make sure you check out dj tlm tv especially if you're looking for reviews i'm back in the review game and i just reviewed uh, the reviews for the pioneer dj and rec app and also the pioneer ddj 1000 controller for record box check that out if you haven't already and i'm currently doing the edit for the xdj rx2 review so that will be online in the next two days and in the coming week, I'll do a comparison video. This could be interesting for a lot of you looking for a new controller. And I'll be comparing the SX3, the DDJ1000, and the XDJ RX2 to show you the differences. And that might help you to make a choice if you're looking for that more upper level controller. So if you pass that entry level controller or player and you're looking for an upgrade, one of these players could be the one for you. All right, I want to get into those questions straight away. I don't know if they're all going to be interesting, but I'll pick the right ones. So the first question I see is how to analyze the crowd you're playing for. Now, I also see that there's a reply. I love that, uh, people replying and already giving answers. The answer is try different types of BPMs. Some crowds enjoy slower music. Uh, I can't totally disagree with that statement, but that's not the answer I would go for. So. If we're talking about how to analyze the crowd you're playing for, I'm not sure if you're talking about reading the crowd or actually analyzing to see what type of crowd it is. Now, both will offer some important information. So if you're walking into a venue before you start to play, you could analyze the crowd by taking a look around to see what kind of people are actually at the venue. So you could look at their age, are they all young are they all old is it a mix of everything then you could also check to see what style of people you're dealing with i mean it's not always obvious but in some cases you could definitely tell if it's more of an urban hip-hop crowd or if it's more of a uppity uh, posh uh, classy crowd uh, or like an alternative crowd it all depends on the party i mean if you know what type of theme there is for that night that should already give you an idea of what type of people you're going to get in but using your eyes never hurts then you can check what type of tracks are being played and how they're reacting to it and that takes us into reading the crowd now you can read the crowd when you play but you can also read the crowd when a dj before you was playing because you're going to check to see how the crowd is reacting to the tracks that are being played so even if the other dj is playing that dj could throw on all sorts of tunes you can't see their reaction 
So you use your eyes, but you also use your ears to see if they give you that roar, that ooh or ah when they hear a track. You know what happens when you throw on a banger that the crowd likes, you're going to get that hype reaction from the crowd. Now, if a DJ before you is playing, you can see how they react to the songs. But if you're playing yourself, that's what you're going to do as well. If you're going to be playing freestyle and you want to read that crowd, you mix in a new track and then you watch their reaction. Were they dancing before? And are they continuing to dance or do they actually stop? If they stop, then it's pretty clear that this is not for them. Are they showing you more energy? Are they getting more hype? Can you clearly tell that they like the track that you just threw in there? Either just by watching them or by listening and hearing those roars from the crowd. Those are like the tell that you're looking for. You're looking for that. If you're not getting any reaction, so no noise at all, and they're not really moving, then you're probably not in the right um, direction yet. Doesn't have to be tempo. It could really just be genre as well. But if you're in the right genre, then yes, within that genre, it could still be that you're not getting them with the right vibe. Maybe you're hitting them with tracks that are too slow, too fast, or um, too old, too new. That all depends on what crowd you have there. So you can analyze by looking at the kind of people you have there, and then you read the crowd by checking their reaction. Hope that answers your question. Next up, different ways to mix songs without intros. Again, I see a reply oh, from the same person. Shout out to you, uh, AK Smills. Um, the answer here is try to make your own intros in audacity. Um, no, that's not the answer. I mean, yes, I understand that is a solution. If you have tracks without an intro and you clearly can't mix with that, then it would be a good idea to try to make your own intro. So maybe there's a piece of instrumental at the end of the track, or at least a piece of the music without vocals, and you can get that, copy it, make a loop and have like an eight bar intro. That would be cool too. But let's just assume that you have a track that has no um, empty parts. So you're gonna hear vocals and things throughout the entire track. So you can't make a edit. You can't like make a real intro. You have tracks that don't have an intro. There are a couple of things you can do. Either the track that you have playing before that, if that track does have like an eight bar intro that's clean or at the end, then you can also activate trigger a cue point if you're playing digitally to go back to that intro. So just say the track is playing. It's time for that hook to come in. Now, normally when the hook, the chorus comes in, that's where you could do your transition. In this case, that's not where you do your transition because then you're going to hear vocals over vocals. Most of the times that doesn't sound right. So you let that hook of the first track play, but at the end of the hook, when the next verse is about to begin on that one, that's where you bring in the new track and you cue the intro of the track that was already playing. So at the moment you bring in the new track, you cue the first track back to the beginning. So then the first track is giving you eight clean bars and the second track is giving you um, vocals already. That is one solution, but what you could also do and that it takes less effort is not mix. Just bring it in on the one. Make sure you bring it in on the right count. If that is on a one, bring it in on the one. If it comes in on a different count, 
that all depends on the track, but just don't mix and bring it in on the right count so people can continue to dance and you won't have clashing vocals from both tracks. So there's multiple solutions for that. You could also just stop that first track, host for a second, and then bring it in if it's a track that they know a familiar track, uh, or just take that out with an echo. There's all sorts of things. Just keep in mind, you don't have to mix everything. So if you have that one or two tracks without the intro and you don't feel comfortable try to do a transition, then just don't, just bring it in. So speaking about transitions and not mixing everything, I have another question about transitions. And the question is, uh, when matching two songs together, do you scratch with the bass drum on the one or do you hit the cue point on the first snare? To me, that's a very familiar, not familiar question, but familiar thing when I think back to when I was first DJing in clubs. I started at home, I practiced at home, I taught myself how to DJ, and yes, I was definitely one of those DJs that would bring it in on the one. Also, when I do my transitions, I would get that first kick drum and I would bring it in on the one. That made so much sense to me. But then when I started to play with other DJs, I started to run into more DJs that were playing and when they were playing and I was watching them, I could see like, okay, you got that one, two, three, four, one, two, they were letting it go on that snare. To me, that looks so unnatural. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're not doing it on the one on the kick. They're doing it on the two on the snare. I don't know the origin of that. If there is an actual science behind that, that people made that choice. But to me, it was never logical because if you look at it, uh, a new phrase begins on the one, not on the two. So it doesn't really feel logical for me to start on the two, but it's it, there's nothing wrong with it. If that's your style, that's your style. You just make sure you grab the right snare drum that is actually that first snare that comes in mostly on the two and that you bring it in on a two. Then your transition is still gonna be right. There's nothing wrong with it. But to me, it was never the logical thing because if you're counting and I never count anymore, it just happens internally, but that one is my goal point. So. Do what works for you. I start with that first kick on the one. The next question is about choices. And it's a little story. And the story is I've been DJing in my town for over five years and my city is slow at change. I enjoy myself the most when I'm free to spin the hip hop selection style music I love, but people here are not so open to it. How can I stay true to my style without losing or passing up gigs? I feel like I'm confirming to the same old party songs to make people happy. Like I said, this is about choices. If you want to play the style that you like, then you are going to be passing up on certain gigs. If, like you say, in your town, most of the people are not open to that style, that probably means that most of the parties that you're being booked for now don't really have that music. So you're playing a lot of tracks that don't really inspire you. It's a thin line. You have to be careful. If you start to sense that it's not making you happy or making you unhappy to play those gigs, you shouldn't play those gigs. And yes, that means that you'll have less gigs. So that means that maybe if you're stuck in that town and there's not a lot of gigs where they play the music that you would like to play, either you're gonna have to treat it as your hobby or side gig, side hustle, and just have a full-time job doing whatever, 
or you're going to have to create your own scene if that's a possibility. But if you say that there's not a lot of people liking that style, then that could be hard. But it's a thin line, like I said. I mean, I understand a lot of DJs will play gigs with a lot of music that they're not really feeling, but they know that that's what needed uh, to rock that party. I myself personally struggle with that, and I definitely made a decision that I'm not doing gigs that I don't feel, and that's definitely costing me gigs. So it is a conscious decision, but you have to be aware that when you make that choice, it means that you're going to be passing up on gigs. So if your objective is to do all the gigs you can do, then in your situation, that most likely will mean that you'll have to play gigs where you play a lot of music that you're not really into, or at least that you don't get to play a lot of the music that you truly love. So it's a personal choice. Uh, for me, it's an obvious one. That's because I've been playing for so long. At a certain point, you definitely want to make sure that you're only doing what makes you happy. But to be honest, I've never put myself in a situation where I had to do a lot of stuff that I didn't want to. But I've been I've had the, the luck that for a long time, the scene that I catered to was pretty large. So I had plenty of gigs where I could play the music I wanted to play. At the moment, that's not the case. So I'm not playing a lot of gigs right now. That's a conscious decision. I could make the choice and say, I'm gonna play all the gigs I can play, really push toward doing that, promote myself for that crowd and uh, network and get my way in. I mean, I know plenty of people. I'm able to get my way in to more places, but I'm not feeling what's being played there right now. So it's just not one of my goals. But that means you'll have less gigs. So like I said, it's a thin line. You have to really make that decision for yourself. Any information on how to use Serato for beginners and how the software works? Again, we have an answer. <laughs> and the answer is from the same person again, AKA Smills. I have to salute you, man. I really like the fact that you're interacting and sharing your own uh, experience and uh, style. But the answer is no sync, learn to beat match. Uh, I have to say again, that's not really an answer to the question because the question is, any information on how to use Serato for beginners? So the question is not, how do I learn how to mix? Um, so I'm not even gonna talk about sync, but if we're talking about how to use Serato for beginners, look, there's plenty of tutorials online that can show you exactly how software like Serato works. Now, Serato was made in the first place to use as a DVS, digital vinyl system, so you were using turntables and control vinyl or CD players and uh, control CDs, and they would control the music that's on your computer. Now, of course, you can use Serato with controllers as well, but basically all that the DJ software does is it offers you a virtual DJ set in the computer. Your entire music collection can be on that computer, and you will control that software either with a controller or with an entire DJ set. But... I cannot explain to you how Serato works in this podcast. I mean, I could, that's gonna take up the entire podcast. We can take a step through a step. I actually have a Serato Scratch Live tutorial series on DJTLM TV on YouTube. Uh, of course, Serato Scratch Live is the old version, but a lot of the basics still uh, are the same. So you could check that. But if you look for Serato DJ tutorial, that should bring up plenty of tutorials as well. So I would say YouTube. Anytime I want to learn something new, YouTube is definitely my go-to place as well. 
Then I have a question that I've seen before and I've actually made videos about this before. And the question is, do I need to go to a DJing school? I'm 30 years old and wondering if I can still get my dream career. I just got the opportunity and the time to start DJing and to buy my own equipment to practice at home. What should I do to make this happen the right way? Now, uh, let me check the reply. Follow your dreams, man. Go grab your equipment today. <laughs> yeah, I like that answer. Now, look, you're 30. That's definitely not too late to start. You can start DJing at any time. Now, to make this a full-time career, do keep in mind that having uh, a DJ career does come with a different kind of lifestyle, especially when it comes to sleep and stuff like that. That is not the easiest to combine when you're 30. And did you have a family? Did I read that right? No, I don't see that. But maybe you already have a family. Combining family life and DJ life is not the easiest, but it can definitely be done. But uh, to answer the first question, do you need a DJ school? No, you don't need a DJ school. You can just start by getting your equipment. And again, you can go to YouTube to find a lot of tutorials. If there's anything you're looking for, I'll plug myself shamelessly. I have a mixed tutorial and scratch tutorial series on DJT Lamb TV. Um, and like 300 other DJ tip videos, but there's a lot more material there. Now, of course, if you would like to have someone to show you stuff personally, face-to-face, -face, in the room with you, then a DJ school could be a thing. So I'm not saying that it's a bad thing, but I'm just saying it's not necessary. You could start at home just to start with the basics, learn how to count music, uh, practice how to beat match. There's plenty of tutorials that can teach you that. And if you're really having trouble with that, then it would be good to have an extra set of eyes to see what's going on, to maybe just guide you in the right direction. That could be done at the DJ school, but you could also find people that could do lessons uh, over Skype or FaceTime or anything like that. Uh, but yo, 30, there's nothing wrong with 30, man. I mean, it's never too late to try and live that dream. Go for it. Even if it just becomes your hobby and you do whatever you do in life, but you have that DJ set at home and anytime you have some free time, you jump in that bedroom, garage, or wherever you place that set and you go have some fun with the DJ set. I would definitely do it. So there was a question that I already saw on my way over to the studio and the question was, what's the procedure for you when you DJ for a mainlining act? And my question and reply was, do you mean if I play a set before the main act? So I'm just DJing at a concert and there's going to be an artist performing? Or do you mean when I'm DJing for the main act, so I'm actually part of the act? And I, there's a reply here, and the reply is, I know your time is valuable, but in answer to both is what I'm looking for, but one is good enough. No, we're definitely going to do both. That's set right now. Uh, shout out to those Muchos, by the way. Um, thanks for the questions, plural. So, I've done both. If we're talking about DJing for an artist, so DJing with the act, I've been a tour DJ for the same act for 20 years now. So I've done over 3,500 live shows with that artist. So that to me is the most natural thing there is. But I've also seen that not every DJ for an act is the same. So let me just break it down the way I've seen it. When I started out, especially coming from a hip hop background, the DJ was like the backbone during a live act. That DJ would interact with the crowd, 
most of the time start, get that crowd hype, start the tracks so the artists could rap, do scratches, do some extra vocals, be really part of that act. That's the school I come from. That's how I view a tour DJ uh, the way I've done it also for the last 20 years. When I'm on stage with brain power, I most of the times will start or we're just being announced and then I hit the stage first. Uh, I play the track, so I start the instrumentals. I do scratches. Sometimes I'll have like a special turntablism break. I also do a lot of backing vocals, so I'm rapping, I'm holding the mic at least uh, 50% or more during the show. I also spend a lot of time not behind the decks, but on front, uh, on the front of the stage with brain power, uh, performing with the crowd. So uh, for me, that's, that's the natural way to do it, and we have a lot of interaction. Now, I've also seen acts like a couple of years after I saw those first hip-hop acts and I was doing that myself. I started to see more acts that would come out and not really perform with a DJ or they would have someone behind a so-called DJ set, but all that DJ would do was uh, press play on a DAT recorder or an instant replay or anything like that, but there was no real DJing going on. And what I've also seen recently is more big acts bringing like real turntablists with them on tour again. And those turntablists will have like their own section in the show and do a crazy act. They'll do some extra cuts here and there. Uh, but most of the times those DJs are not also like doing backing. So it all depends on how, um, how your relation is to that act. Are you only being called in when that act has a show? And is it basically just your job to start the track? So you're gonna get that playlist. Maybe you do one rehearsal, you'll have the track list. You know which tracks to start when. Maybe you have a couple of parts where you're allowed to do some scratches, but that's it. Because if you're not really touring with an artist, most likely you're not gonna be doing backings. Uh, it all depends. But for me personally, it is all about really being um, involved with that act but i i've done a couple of shows over the years i've done some shows with a different act but that was like a one or two time deal with acts that i really knew already and um respected enough to do that like once or twice but i always made sure that it was pretty clear here in the netherlands that i'm not a freelance dj doing shows with all sorts of artists because i'm already like the tour DJ for one artist and I like that identity. So that's it for me. But I know plenty of DJs that are like uh, hired guns and not in a negative way, but they will do shows with five, six, seven different artists and I see their posts and now they're doing it with this artist, then with that artist. So um, they're sort of like, like I said, they're like that turntable is gun for hire that just comes out whenever one of those artists has a show. There's different scenarios. It all depends on what what kind of shows we do. I mean, like I said, I've been touring with Brainpower for 20 years. So we've done every sort of gig you can imagine from a small bar to playing in front of 10,000, 20,000, 40,000 people, uh, uh, stadium-sized things, all sorts of festivals, definitely all sorts of clubs, theaters, the zoo. <laughs> I'm not even joking. I mean, we've done shows at all sorts of places. Of course, a lot of TV performances as well. Any type of radio performances, anything imaginable, uh, I think we've done already and are still doing. But when it comes to the other question, so when you're just the DJ at a venue 
and you're basically opening for the main act. So you're the DJ that's going to be playing before the main act comes out to perform. Uh, in that case, it all depends on what kind of artist it is. I've done plenty of those as well. Uh, those were mostly hip-hop shows at a club called Paradiso in Amsterdam and another club called Milky Way. Uh, a lot of the hip-hop artists would come to those two venues, and I would do a lot of gigs where I was just DJing before that artist came out. Now, I had a couple of simple rules. One rule, of course, is don't play music from that artist. That's like a, the biggest no-no. You do not play their tracks that's for them to do during their show. Same thing if you're opening up for a big DJ and they have their own productions, you do not play their tracks. I mean, I've played for Jazzy Jeff and, and for Premiere and DJ Scratch, and I'm not playing a Gangstar track if I'm opening for Primo. That's not happening. I mean, no, that does not make sense. It depends on what kind of artist it is. If I'm playing before the main act comes on, then you want to make sure that you're hyping up that crowd because the main event is about to come. So you're not going to be in some low energy warm up uh, vibe. You want to make sure that you're getting that crowd ready. Now, keep in mind, it depends on how long you play. If you have to play two hours before uh, the act comes on, you don't want to start with bangers straight away, probably, all depending on how full a venue is already. There's all sorts of things that play a, play a part in how you approach this, but you want to make sure that you get a lot of energy in there, get the crowd ready uh, with the right type of tracks. Let's say it's an R&B act, like a bigger R&B act. You're opening for Chris Brown or something like that. Then I'm probably not going to hit him with the most crazy energetic, aggressive hip hop, because most likely there's going to be a lot of ladies in there. Now, I'm not just going to hit them with R&B, but you're going to take uh, into consideration what type of people are there. But uh, I don't know. I can actually not think of anything else to say for that right now. I mean, you, you're there to do a show. You're there to hype up the crowd. You would do the same thing if it's a club night. In this case, there's going to be an artist coming on after you. So you want to get it hype, but maybe not over the top hype. Imagine if you're hyper than the actual act. I don't see it happening, but that that would not be good. And just don't play tracks of that artist. I think that's the best advice I can give you now. And that's it. For the modern day DJ, producer or musician, it's more important than ever to make sure you have an online presence. And having your own website is key. Bazoogle makes it easy to build a stunning website for your music in minutes. You can choose from hundreds of mobile friendly themes and then customize your design and content in a few clicks with Bazoogle's easy visual editor. Now, All the features you need for a professional website are already built in, including tools to sell your music and merch commission free, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, and integration to pull in content from all your online services, including Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud. I use Bazoogle to create the Share the Knowledge podcast website and that was very easy. Bazoogle plans start at just $8.29 a month and include your own free custom domain name. Now, if you want to try it out for free for 30 days, click on the link in the description box down below and be sure to use the promo code SHARE to get 15% off the first year of your subscription. Then there's a question about timing. The question is, is it a must to start scratching on the third beat? I've never heard this before, <laughs> to be honest. So my answer would definitely be no. So first of all, there's no rule on which count you should, you should start scratching. There's just not. You want to make sure that you're scratching on beat and that is obvious that you're following the rhythm of a track. I mean, I've seen and heard DJs that were doing like a, a little bit of a scratch performance and that it was really like confusing. Like, wait a minute, 
what beat are they listening to? Because I hear the beat and those scratches do not correspond with the beat that I'm hearing. So you wanna make sure that you're just following the rhythm that you're on beat, but there's no rule that says you have to start on the first, second, third, or fourth beat. I've, I start on all sorts of accounts. Sometimes I'll start on that one. Sometimes I'll start on the two or three. I, I don't know, anything goes. There's, so there's no, there's no rules. There's definitely no rules. Turntablists, if you're listening or uh, watching this and you disagree or I'm missing something and you have heard of this rule, please let me know in the comment section down below. I would love to hear that one. Next up, a question about traveling, I think. So the question is, after traveling the last two years, I want advice on how to deal with checking and carry-on luggage. Specifically, I travel with my S9 and I have my backpack with two laptops, one as backup when I'm uh, on the road. And how do you get around weight issues, especially on domestic flights? Are they checking their mixer in? Woo! Uh, good question. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I don't know if there's ways to get around like the weight limits. I mean, there's going to be weight limits, especially with domestic. Uh, and sometimes that just means that you're going to have to pay an extra fee. Now, if there's something, if it's for a booking and there's something you can do about that, that is part of your fee that they pay for that extra uh, weight fee, that could be a good thing. But uh, look, I can imagine that uh, a lot of people would like to have their equipment close to them. So they don't want to have their mixer like... Uh, below in the plane. I mean, you know how cargo is treated. I mean, you've either seen it or heard it. If you talk to people working at airports, I mean, they do not respect your luggage. And I know I've had turntables and mixers in flight cases with like 25 stickers saying fragile and uh, also like record cases. And you could just see when you went to pick that up after the flight that it looked like it had been through a war zone. I remember bringing a brand new crate. Do I have that crate here? Uh, yeah, I have it here. I'm not going to bring it out, but I have it here in the studio. That thing was brand new, like brand, brand new. I went to New York. I bought a bunch of records. And what I would do at that time, I'm talking about like, what time is that? 50. 15 years ago, probably. Uh, what I would do, I would go to NY with nothing, meaning I would have literally close to no clothes, except for maybe one extra outfit and, of course, some underwear. And I would buy everything there because at that time, you could get a lot of dope gear um, in the U.S. that we couldn't really get here. The online shopping thing was not the way it is now. So I would buy clothes in NY and I would buy a bunch of records, like a lot of records. Now I would make sure I take all the plastic off so when I got back to customs in the Netherlands, they wouldn't think this was all like acquired brand new. I would just act like I already had that with me. Uh, same thing with my uh, luggage. My bags were like filled with all brand new clothes that I bought, but I just take all the, 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 the pricing, all the tags and stuff out. So that was just my normal luggage. And it didn't look crazy. It was not like I came in with like four bags of clothes. I went over there with nothing. So I came back with a normal suitcase filled with gear. So that didn't really uh, catch their eye. But when it came to records, I bought like a brand new record case at B Street in NY to put all the records in. When I got back here in Amsterdam, that brand new record crate flight case, 
every side was totally dented. It had big scratches. It looked like they used it to play a game of uh, like NFL football or something. So long story short, they do not respect your luggage, like I said. So I understand you don't want to have your S9 in a simple uh, suitcase because I would feel uh, that that could really go wrong. I don't bring equipment anymore. I don't travel a lot anyway when it comes to DJing, but the last couple of gigs I did overseas, I definitely did not bring mixers and stuff like that. I'll bring my laptop and I might bring control vinyl and I'll have needles. Uh, that's basically it. Now the laptop is in my backpack. That's never gonna be an issue with weight. Even with two laptops, that should never be an issue with weight, but I don't bring more equipment than that. If I would, it would still be in flight cases uh, and then I would just hope for the best. I brought brand new Vestax PDX 2000s from Amsterdam to Poland once. And when I arrived there and I got them out of the flight cases, all the legs were broken. So again, <laughs> I don't know what they did, but um, yeah, I try to prevent that, man. Like When it comes to equipment, especially nowadays, most places you'll go to will have what you need or at least something similar to it that's why it also it's also a good thing to learn how to play with a lot of different uh things when it comes to equipment now of course if you're used to an s9 you don't want to have a totally different mixer there that does not have the same functions that's going to really mess you up but even then man i take stuff like that into consideration because i'm not bringing that s9 everywhere that's not going to survive but beyond that, I don't have enough experience now, especially in these times with uh, checking and carry on luggage and bringing your own equipment. So if anyone travels a lot and brings their own equipment, let us know in the comment section how you deal with that. Then we have a question from a strip club DJ. And as a strip club DJ, I have over a thousand live sets, but I'm having a hard time breaking the strip club DJ stigma and transitioning nightclubs. Any advice? Um, no, not really. And the reason I say that is we do not have the strip club culture over here at all. You have something similar to strip clubs here in the Netherlands, but I don't even know if they have like DJs. I mean, they'll probably have that dude announcing and starting music, but I don't know if you could consider that like uh, someone really DJing. I'm not sure. But we don't have that culture over here. So it's a totally different scenario. But I could say, as a DJ, you could have to deal with certain stigmas beyond just the strip club DJ. I have the same thing basically because I have, um, I'm considered an old school DJ. I don't only like old school music, but that is what happened over the years. Most of my bookings here now are like old school uh, bookings, throwback parties, stuff like that, where they want to hear like uh, hip hop and R&B from the 90s up to like 2003, 4, 5, stuff like that. Even though I play newer music, but that's what a lot of people see me as. Maybe because I am older now that they don't regard you as one of the young guys and you probably don't play a lot of the new stuff. Um, at first, I had trouble with that, and I really wanted to combat that because for the longest time, I was one of the DJs uh, playing the newest, newest tracks. Not a lot of DJs here were doing that. I'm talking about 2003, 4, 5, 6, 7. We, me and a couple of DJs, were playing all the new tracks that like 95% of the DJs here were scared to play. 
A lot of DJs played safe. They would only play the hits once they were hits. They would never break a track, nothing like that. And we were coming in with the newest tracks we could find. We heard a brand new track and uh, we found it that night on the internet. We would burn it to a CD, bring it to the club and play it because we thought it was a banger. And I mean, it was, but people didn't know it yet. And at that time, a lot of times the crowd would not participate. So if they heard something new, they would not give you a reaction or even leave the dance floor. And I've had that happen with like major hits before they were major hits. I've cleared the dance floor with tracks like Lean Back because Lean Back was not known here yet. I come back from New York that day. I bought it and I heard that it was on a white label, not even the official release. And I heard that lean back beat. I was like, yo, this is crazy. Came back that night, played uh, in a town here called Rotterdam, full dance floor, hip hop and R&B crowd. Brought that track in. Yo, check it out. Brand new Terror Squad, Scott Storch. And nah, nah, that intro came in, then the beat dropped. That dance floor shh, emptied out because people didn't know the track yet. But at that time, I was one of those DJs that would also have that mindset like, I don't care if people don't react to it yet. I'm not gonna wait until all these other DJs start playing it and now it is a hit and now they wanna hear it, no. Even if there's two people in the crowd that will remember like, yo, you were playing that like four months ago, cool. I'm not gonna wait. When I hear something that's dope, I wanna add it. But my point is for the longest time, I was like one at the forefront to play the newest music. Then we hit a, um, a time here where Throwback parties started to become really popular, like a lot of parties with 90s hip-hop R&B, New Jack Swing, and of course, since I come from that era, I definitely took part in that, took a lot of those bookings. Love playing those parties. Did a lot of mixtapes to promote parties like that, was a resident at a couple of parties like that, and that lasted for a couple of years. Then that kind of died down a little bit, but by that time, I was older, and people had, for the last time, seen me mostly play that, and that stuck. And that's the image I didn't really get uh, rid of. Wanted to at first. Now I actually don't mind anymore. I don't care. It is part of my lane because I really come from that and love that. So I love to play that. And at the current time, I'm not really looking for uh, a main spot in today's uh, slots at all the clubs because even though I like new music, a lot of the new tracks I like are not the tracks that are playing in the clubs right now. So it's not really connecting. So I'm actually perfectly fine doing a lot of the throwback parties now. And for the rest of the time, I'm focusing on uh, the video thing, the DJ TLM thing, the podcast. And that's really, uh, that makes me happier than playing a gig that I wouldn't want to play. I don't know how they view strip club DJs. Is this something that is like not respected? Is it seen as if you play at a strip club, you're not suitable for clubs? I mean, I think this is a cool discussion, but I would like to hear some more. So maybe you can leave a comment in the comment section just to um, explain a little bit. How are DJs in the strip clubs there playing and how is it different from what's being played in the club? Because from my understanding, from what I have heard is a lot of the big hits, especially out in the ATL, a lot of the hits that come out of there actually are made in the strip clubs, a lot of DJs or a lot of artists actually bring it to the strip club DJ first, see how the crowd reacts there, and if it works, then they know they got a hit on their hand. That's what I've heard, but I'm not sure. Since I don't know how different it is from being a club DJ, uh, it's hard for me to really answer that or to see how you could shake that image. Uh, but if there's a big difference, then you have to start profiling yourself as a club DJ maybe.
by dropping mix mixes that uh, are clearly club mixes, dropping some video material. And I mean, I would assume you have a network and just try to start somewhere. But uh, yeah, I'd like to hear more info about this so we can talk about this more. So if you're listening to this or if you're watching the video clip, drop a comment in the comment section. Let's go. All right, then there's a question about Rekordbox. DJ, it is in Dutch, so I'll do a quick translation, but it comes down to um, a DJ, DJ Massive, what up? Um, he's been playing with Rekordbox DJ DVS for six months, and there's so many bugs. Uh, besides doing all the updates, there's still a lot of bugs. So he's thinking about just going back to Serato, and he wanted to know my experience with Rekordbox DJ. Well, I've been using Rekordbox DJ here and there, but Serato is my main software. I haven't done long sets with Rekordbox DVS, so I can't really say if that um, is in a better place. I mean, when Rekordbox DJ first started, it had its bugs. I do believe that they're getting better and better, and they're dropping a lot of updates. I always see new updates. Like half the times when I'm starting Rekordbox, I have to install the new update. I played with it when I was doing the DDJ1000 uh, review, and I had one turntable connected to do the DVS thing as well. That was working, but like I said, I wasn't doing a long set with it. If that actually has a lot of bugs or it's not working for you, then yes, I can understand that you would wanna just switch back to Serato. I mean, if you look at the way they work, a lot of things are similar, but with Serato, you know for a fact that it's safe, that it works. So if you're having a lot of problems with Rekordbox DJ DVS, look online also to see if there's maybe issues with your computer. I don't know if you use Mac or Windows. I know Windows still, ah, there's always some issues going on with certain updates or certain versions. Maybe that is an issue and it's not really Rekordbox DJ. I can't tell. But if it's giving you a lot of problems, then I would definitely switch for now. You don't want to do gigs and then have everything go wrong. Then I have a question about software, and the question is, what's your favorite go-to software, and why do you choose it over others, and what makes it stand out over others? Now, I assume we're talking about DJ software, because we could also be talking about editing software, production software. There's a lot of software. When it comes to DJ software, I've been using Serato, and now Serato DJ Pro, of course, for the longest. I started out with Final Scratch. That doesn't even exist anymore. That was made by Stanton and Native Instruments. Tractor was never my thing, not because I think the software is not good, but because somehow I always had issues anytime I tried to use Tractor with a device that was not a Native Instruments de uh, device. So Serato has been my go-to. I like the interface better. It looked like it was geared more towards the turntablist and Tractor was more aimed towards the producer performing type of DJ. I just felt more at home using Serato. That felt right to me when I saw it and I saw Tractor. I was like, yeah, Serato really looks like it's my thing. It's been really dependable. It, it always worked for me. I've tried Rekordbox DJ now. Uh, seems to work. I haven't switched, but I want to make sure that I'm familiar with all of the different DJ software out there. So if I have to bring a DDJ 1000 with Rekordbox DJ, I'm good to go as well. But Serato is still, for now, my number one. But I've also done a couple of gigs where I use Algorithm DJ Pro too. Uh, because in that case, I was playing a gig where I really wanted the Spotify integration. So I had a controller and DJ2 and that gets the job done as well. So all of the DJ software basically 
works the same way and all will have their own extra features and they all look a little bit different. Uh, but for now, Serato is still my main one, not because it really stands out, but because it is dependable and it just, uh, it, it's, it's so familiar for me to use. And there's no other software out yet that brought something to the table that made me say like, wow, I really need to switch because Serato can't do this and this other software is so much better. Unless something comes uh, comes out that is like a total game changer and so much better, I don't really see a reason to switch. All right, I wanna get into this question. It looks like a long question, but I think it's a good one. So the last gig, I was bugged down with requests and it broke the flow I was in where I had the dance floor packed and kept the party going. Following through with the request meant that I broke my flow and introduced songs that a selected group liked and made some of the others on the dance floor walk away. Maybe I'm too nice of a guy and play requests pretty quick. What are your thoughts on when to play requests? Mind you, this was a high school grad party gig and these are kids who I wanted to have a good time. So playing their requests meant that it was their favorite songs being played. Uh, well, I'm really glad that you added that last part because I do feel that's important. If I'm doing a club gig, then I'm all about reading the crowd and getting them going with the tracks that I want to give to them, getting in a flow, getting in my zone. Um, it's not that I won't take a request, but I'll listen. But if I feel that the request in any way does not fit what I'm doing or the direction I'm going... I'm not playing it. If I like the track, but it won't fit now, I'll keep it in mind and it might work later on in a set, but that's the way I approach it. I will always give the main priority to the flow that I'm in. And especially if it's working, if I'm rocking the crowd, I'm not gonna interrupt that flow to try something else just because someone requests it and it might mess up my set. Now, if we're talking about different types of parties, like I just said, I also have a couple of parties where I, for instance, play with Algorithm DJ Pro because of the Spotify integration. And those parties are school parties where I'm playing. Um, that's my son's school. I don't do school parties at other schools. But for my son's school, those kids are between 4 and 12 years old. Now, for that crowd, there's a lot of music they want to hear that I don't have, don't want to have, will never get, but it's all on Spotify. At that gig, it's not about the way I want to play. I'll go nuts with requests. And even then, a lot of the requests will only cater to a part of the crowd and then the next one to another part of the crowd. But at the end of the day, they're all hearing the tracks they want to hear. And they're happy. That's what it's all about. High school grad party, it's a little bit different. You do want to kind of rock the party, but at the end of the day, you also want to make sure those kids are having like a great time. So yeah, I mean, you do want to incorporate, you, you could incorporate requests. Some people still won't, but I understand that that's probably a pretty good place to incorporate a lot of requests because they will tell you what type of uh, tracks the crowd wants to hear. But again, in most cases, requests are never a track that the entire crowd wants to hear. Now, if you feel that it's really gonna interrupt your flow, I would sometimes still put that flow before that request, but maybe you just break it down into sections. If you got that flow going, you'll take those requests, but you already calculate, like I'm gonna continue to rock this crowd with what I'm doing for the next 30 minutes, 
And then I'll switch and get into like half hour of requests and really go all out with the requests and maybe then get back to doing a little set of this and that. I'm not sure, but it's a tricky situation. It really requires you to have a good idea of what that crowd is into and how far you can take it. But if you feel in your gut that the request that you're receiving is totally not going to work with what you're doing and you already have in mind what you're going to do next and very important, what you're doing up until that point is pleasing the crowd, then I go with my feeling. Now, look, if you're playing at a high school party and it's not really hitting off, so you're not getting the reactions you're looking for. At that time, a request could be a lifesaver because it's clear that you're not reaching that crowd yet. And maybe that request is going to give you a clear indication of uh, what it is that you're looking for. Yeah, it's a tough one, but it's going to be like you're going to have to find that right balance and know when to keep uh, when to have what as a priority. So I, I hope that helps you out. Now, I have a question from The Real DJ Prophecy, and the question is, can you please explain DJ insurance? For example, I recently had a gig and destroyed a client's mailbox while pulling into the driveway. Does DJ insurance even cover that? Uh, no, I will not give uh, legal advice for the simple fact that I have no clue. Insurance is not going to be the same in any country. DJ insurance definitely is not going to be the same in any country, so I don't really have an idea. Uh, and to be even more honest, I'm not even sure if we have like a proper DJ insurance here in the Netherlands or if you just insure, for instance, yourself and insure your equipment. There's all sorts of insurances. So, for instance, you have like a normal insurance where if you go to someone's house and you would break something, that your insurance would cover that. Uh, liability type of insurances. Uh, an insurance for when you're driving in the car that you're insured, but also if anything happens to the people in that car that it falls under that same insurance. Same thing with traveling. Even in my own country, I'm not familiar with all the insurances that you have, so I would not even dare to begin to talk about other insurance policies in other countries. But it is definitely smart to look into that. Now, especially if you're talking about pulling into a client's driveway, somehow that gives me an idea that you might be a mobile DJ, I'm not sure. But for mobile DJs especially, if you're going everywhere, bringing a lot of equipment with an increased chance that something could go wrong, like hitting mailboxes or when you're walking in with speakers, you might break a window. I would definitely make sure that you have an insurance that covers that. If that's a DJ insurance or just some sort of general liability insurance that covers you for that, I think that would be a very good idea. But I could not give any advice when it comes to that. All right, then there's my favorite subject, freestyle DJing. So the question is, when you're playing freestyle, so no pre-made list, how do you manage uh, transitioning between BPM gaps? Uh, I know you can drop it on the one, but blend sound nicer to me. Yeah, sure. I mean, a blend sounds nicer, but when you're dealing with a large BPM gap, like a large BPM difference, then just like a mixed transition most of the times it's just not your best option. Now, of course, with, with today's like master tempo, and especially since you have uh, a lot of players and DJ software that offers you the option to change the BPM range and you can set your player to wide or to 50 or 100%, you could speed tracks up like incredibly or slow them down a lot. You could blend every track, even if there's like a 40 BPM difference, you could fix that. It's probably not going to sound that good, though. I just prefer to do it otherwise in those situations. But you could. You could have like a short loop. So let's, let's just imagine you have a track that is uh, 95 BPM. 
but your next track is gonna be 128. You could take the start of that 128 track, make like a short loop, it could be a two bar loop, four bar loop, whatever it is, and slow that all the way down to 95. So you can make a transition at 95 BPM. You make the transition, you work your EQ, whatever it is. When the transition is done, you keep that loop going. You might host that or have an MC say something, and then you start to pitch up that 95, pitch it up more, maybe add a little effect where you add some noise, uh, extra buildup sound, bring it up, bring it up, bring it up. People are gonna hear how that uh, tempo starts to, inc uh, starts to uh, go up from 95. Now you're at 100, 105, 110, 115, till you get to that 128, and then you let the loop go. I mean, you could do that. In some cases, it could work, it could sound good, but you definitely don't wanna do that a lot. But if you play smart and you don't transition between big BPM gaps too much, then stuff like that could work as well. So you have options like that, like the one I just gave you, but in most cases, it's just gonna be so much easier to not go through that and just make a simple switch on the one or pull it back, echo, host, anything else, interact with the crowd, bring in a new track instead of trying to mix everything. Now, I think I saw a second question from uh, the same person. And the second question is, how do you handle cable management when you play in a venue that asks you to bring your own equipment? So decks, mixer, mic, at bars or charity events, et cetera. Uh, cable management, but I, I don't have any like special technique when it comes to cable management. If I bring decks and a mixer and mics, that would mean that I have power cables for my turntables and mixer. It would mean that I would bring RCA cables to connect the turntables to the mixer. I will probably need, I will bring like a USB cable to connect my mixer to the laptop and bring a second USB cable just to be safe. And I would have a microphone cord, XLR uh, cable cord for the microphone. So it's not that many cables, but like special cable management? No, I don't. I mean, you have certain systems that will make sure that everything stays within one tube and have everything come out of there. That looks nice. So you could do that, but I'm not bringing my equipment to a lot of gigs. So it doesn't really make sense for me to uh, invest in stuff like that. I do not have a clear answer for that. So mobile DJs, this is a great question for you. How do you deal with cable management? Uh, because you're bringing all of your equipment, including speakers. Uh, do you have like a special equipment to keep that all safe, secure? How do you set it up? Uh, maybe you can give some uh, info when it comes to that. So that's it for episode 55 of the Share the Knowledge podcast. I want to thank you for tuning in right here on iTunes, Anchor, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. And if you checked out a video clip from the Share the Knowledge podcast on DJ TLM TV on YouTube or on IGTV on Instagram, thanks for tuning in as well. I want to send a special shout out to all of you who asked a question on Instagram. Uh, probably do the same thing next week, or maybe next week I'll do it uh, through Twitter or through the Share the Knowledge Facebook group. Now, if you want to check out any of my social or my Facebook group, uh, group anything like that, I'll have links to everything in the description box down below. So make sure you check that out. And if you enjoyed the podcast, if you enjoyed this video clip of the podcast, please help me to share the knowledge by sharing my content. That could help spread the word and and uh, I would greatly appreciate that. If you're new to my YouTube channel, make sure you subscribe and activate notifications so you don't miss out on any of my future content, including tutorials, reviews, tips and tricks, and of course, more podcast clips. Thanks. See you next time.